You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. First Samuel chapter 27 through chapter 30. You know, the tension between David and Saul continues to escalate over the course of 1 Samuel. Ever since Saul tore the robe from the departing Samuel, we have been waiting in suspense for the Lord to tear away Saul's kingdom. God's word is sure. We know it's coming. We're just waiting for when and how. And as we await the ripping away of Saul's kingdom, we have seen at the same time the rise of God's chosen king. David of Bethlehem is his name, who first emerged on the scene in the valley of Elah to slay the giant of Gath named Goliath. And so over the last several chapters, we've seen a parallel, a crossing, if you will, that as Saul begins to decline, David is on the rise. We know what's coming. We know what God's word has said. It is only a matter of time before Saul meets his deserved end and David ascends to the throne of Israel. Soon, the tension that has been emerging and the conflict, it will eventually find its resolution. We begin to find its resolution in the chapters before us in a dramatic final week, leaving Saul dead on the battlefield and David victorious and triumphant. We study these four chapters from 1 Samuel this morning at the start of what Christians have traditionally celebrated as Holy Week, starting today with Palm Sunday and moving on to the events of Easter weekend. So throughout the Gospels, we see a similar tension building between Jesus and the religious leaders. And those tensions come to a climax in the final week of Jesus' life before the cross where we see Jesus and the religious leaders come into conflict. And as we see the religious leaders and their influence begin to decline, we've seen the people grow to love and cherish Jesus. On Palm Sunday, we remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, donkey as the people line up on the road to Bethany with palm branches in their hands, singing, Hosanna to the Lord's chosen king. So before we begin the holy week, if you will, of David's ascent to the throne, we must first follow David out into the Judean desert into his exile exile at Ziglag in Philistine territory. And David spared Saul's life for a second time, we saw last week. And after that, Saul promised, he gave his word not to hunt David any longer, but the two men in the conversation going separate ways. And we've seen repeatedly Saul is temperamental, he's erratic, he's not a man of his word, and he regularly goes back on it. So at the start of chapter 27, David determines that the safest route for him and his company is to go into exile into the land of the Philistines, thinking that by doing so, Saul will just give up his search. So David returns to the Philistine city of Gath. Back in 1 Samuel 21, we remember David visited this city at the start of his wilderness journey when he was fleeing from the house of Saul. On that first occasion, David grew afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, 
The people of Gath had heard about David. They knew the top 100 radio hit of Israel. Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. So David feigned madness, and he ran, and he fled the city. But here he returns to Gath yet again. And as we've seen repeatedly, as David feigned madness on that first occasion, King Achash of Gath is rather easily duped. So let's keep, re- let's, let's keep reading here in 1 Samuel chapter 27, 5 through 7. Then David said to Achash, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the member, the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. David chooses to return to Gath. This time, not by himself, but with an army of 600 men, along with the household of those men, meaning that David is probably traveling in the wilderness with, at this time, with a couple thousand people, including the women and the children. And so this time, as David goes to Gath, he gets an open reception. Why is that? Well, most likely, King Achish probably heard more so of Saul's hatred of David, how Saul had been unrelenting in his hunting of David in the wilderness, and Achish assumes that if Saul hates David so much, then David must certainly hate Saul so much. And so he relishes the opportunity that I can take in this David, the champion of Israel, and along with his massive army, and I can kind of add him as my own personal mercenary fighting force. Sounds like a pretty good deal. And so because of David's size, as he comes into the Philistine territories, he talks to Achish, he says, you know, Achish, I've got a lot of folks here. It's probably going to be best if we settle a little bit outside of town and Ziklag, David, as we see, is as innocent as a serpent, as innocent as a dove, and as wise as a serpent. He has to walk over these next few chapters a very delicate balance between giving the impression to Achish that he is loyal to the Philistines, while at the same time preserving his loyalty to King Saul and Israel. So he wisely, shrewdly, you might say asked for a country town about 25 miles outside of Akesh's observing eye to set up his base of operations. Ziklag was originally located or allocated to the tribes of Simeon and Judah, but as we know, Israel never finished the conquest. But now, Ziklag becomes the residence of the new Israel, of the Lord's king, David and his merry men, for a year and four months. And so the Lord's anointed king and the new Israel now exiled in Philistine country town. So over that year and four months, we see David keep up the pretense of loyalty to Achish and the Philistines. Let's read what he does in verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as shore, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, against the Negeb of the Jeremelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. 
And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom, all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. So how did David walk this tightrope? Well, here's what he did. When David made raids, he would do so against the inhabitants of the land from of old, meaning that David is finishing off the conquest of the promised land. And when he raided these pagan encampments, he wouldn't leave a human being alive. He couldn't have any word getting back to Achish about who he was really fighting. But David would bring back the spoils of the victory from those pagan towns to Achish, And whenever Achish inquired, well, David, where'd you go raid today? Give me your your report. David would be intentionally vague, giving Achish the impression that he was fighting Israeli towns, even though he wasn't. While David is technically right, he is raiding in the southern country of Judah. He's being very coy about who he is raiding. Achish assumes Well, David's attacking the Israelites. He's just slaughtering them. He's raiding their towns. And so over the course of a year and four months of this, Achish grew to trust David and believe, well, David's proven his worth. He's made himself an utter stench to Israel by now, even though David had never actually raised his blade against any Israelite. But eventually the Lord's appointed time draws near. And at the start of 1 Samuel 28 begins the overview of the last week of King Saul, leading to David's ascent to the throne, which culminates at the end of 1 Samuel with the death of King Saul. Let's start in chapter 28, verse 1 and 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel, and Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So we see at the start of the chapter, the five kings of the Philistines make plans to join forces against Israel. A battle is coming together. Achish wants what he so thinks, his loyal David, by his side as his bodyguard. But Achish's trust in David becomes not just ironic over the course of the next few chapters, it's utterly humorous. You can almost feel the humor in David's response. Well, very well, Achish, if you're going to make me come out and fight Israel, you're going to know what your servant can do. Wink, wink, nod, nod, right? As we know, David's not going to raise his sword against the Lord's anointed, nor will he raise his sword against the armies of Israel. Achish will soon find out what David can do all right. Nevertheless, the foolish king is oblivious, and he's ready to make David his bodyguard life. Now, pay attention to what happens here in the text. The historian of Samuel leaves us on a cliffhanger after these verses and shifts our attention to King Saul. Starting in verse 3, there is what we would call a flash forward. Chapter 28 happens after the events of chapter 29. It's very important to remember. We know this primarily because of the geography of the towns mentioned in the text. The armies of Israel and the Philistines are already gathered at the start of this chapter. They're not going to be gathered yet in chapter 29. And also because we're told the events here of chapter 28 happen the night before Saul's death, meaning immediately prior to chapter 31. 
But the historian brings this flash forward up closer in order to better contrast and foil David from Saul. Because at this point in this episode, as we're watching David having to maintain a tenuous loyalty to the Philistines, we might think, well, how in the world is David going to get out of this mess as he goes to battle with the Philistines against Israel? But if we think David's problems are bad, the historian just says, hold up a second. Wait until you see what Saul's got going on. And of course, we pick that up in chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel had died. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. As we read Saul's plight, we can't help but have our hearts sink. Saul illustrates the deceitfulness of sin that can harden our hearts against the Lord. We are reminded that Samuel had died. And while king, one of Saul's successes, and he had some success along the way, one of his successes was kicking out all the mediums and necromancers out of the land of Israel. The law of God forbade all forms of divination in any attempts to consult the dead. The Lord outlawed the occult in Israel, not because they weren't effective, but because they were immoral. Not because they weren't genuine, but because it was an abomination. The danger of seances and tarot cards and palm readings and horoscopes and fortune telling is not that most of them are con artists which they are, but that some of them are not. I was in Barnes & Noble recently, and I was astonished to see the section on Christianity and even just religion in general shrinking while the section on the occult and New Age spirituality and witchcraft increasing, even finding a place prominent at the front of the store. You see, as our culture rejects the Lord Jesus Christ, in the vacuum of spirituality, people are turning to the occult of paganism. And be warned, and do not even consider dabbling with it. But we see here a sad reality that in the absence of God's word, people desperate for spiritual knowledge can turn to dangerous and dark arts. As the army of the Philistines gather, Saul was afraid and his heart trembled greatly, the text says. And verse 6 of our text has to be what I think is one of the most frightening verses in all of Scripture. Because of Saul's disobedience, Saul endures the silence of God. The Lord often spoke to kings through dreams all throughout the Old Testament. But we're told King Saul had no dreams. The Lord would speak through the priesthood, with Urim and Thummim, but, but Saul had slaughtered the priests at Nob, and the only, king, the only priest left was now with David. And the Lord spoke by the prophets to his kings, but Samuel had left Saul, and now he's dead. Saul was trapped 
in the divine silence of his own making. He had a chance to listen to God's word, and he ignored it, and he said, I'm going to do it my own way. He had cut himself off from the word of the Lord, and now in divine judgment, the Lord refuses to speak. One of the most horrible expressions of God's wrath is when he gives us over to what we want. Saul didn't want to listen to God's word, and so now he doesn't get God's word. Saul's life illustrates an important, important lesson for all of us, important warning. That whenever we are reading God's word, whenever we are listening to it preached, we must respond to that word with attention and obedience. When the Spirit so graciously convicts us from the word, it is also easy for us to ignore it, to suppress it to cast it out of our minds, to harden our hearts against the work of the Holy Spirit in that moment. Whenever you might find that the Spirit is convicting you from the Word, and your heart can become so hardened over time against the gospel message that you become entrapped in a spiritual blindness, a permanent deafness of your own making as the Lord gives you over to your hardness of hearts. Charles Spurgeon tells of a man that requested his presence on his deathbed. And the man had been a scoffer, denouncing Charles Spurgeon publicly, even publicly accusing him of hypocrisy. But now in the desperation of death, as his death is coming, the man superstitiously calls for Charles Spurgeon. And on that, of that occasion, here's what Spurgeon wrote in his autobiography. He had, when in health, wickedly refused Christ. Yet, in his death agony, he had superstitiously sent for me. Too late, he sighed, for the ministry of reconciliation, and sought to enter in at the closed door, but he was not able. There was no space left then for repentance, for he had wasted the opportunities which God had long granted to him. What a, what a horrific state of the soul to know that you need repentance, but yet being unable to do so. And in Saul's desperation for divine counsel, he determines that the only, only way I can get some sort of counsel is to speak to that prophet that I first met when I was a young man on my wild donkey chase, the prophet Samuel, the guy who first anointed me as king, but, but Samuel's dead. How am I going to talk to him? And so Saul learns from his servants that there is a medium still left in the land that he had not yet kicked out in the land of Endor. So Saul turns to the wicked means of divination to summon the dead prophet from the grave. Let's keep reading in verse 8. So Saul disguised himself, and he put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul answered to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. 
When the woman saw Samuel, he cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. He bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Saul disguises himself and approaches the witch at night. And the woman operates in secrecy because her work is forbidden by edict of King Saul. But little does she know that King Saul is actually standing right before her making the requests. Horribly, Saul swears on the name of Yahweh to protect her life, even though God's law required the sentence of capital punishment for necromancy. And notice the irony. Saul is seeking to get a word from God while outright disobeying the revealed word of God. How the mighty have fallen. And sadly, see how many people today are just like Saul, who disobey God's plain written word in the name of God himself. And the woman conjures up the spirits. Saul shares the name of the one he wishes to see and wishes to speak, Samuel. And the necromancer shrieks in horror at the sight of Samuel. Even she seems a little surprised by his conjuring. Perhaps her screams indicate that she's normally a con, but she's become real in a way that she's never experienced before. But Samuel, cloaked in his prophetic robes, appears before him. And through Saul's sinful an illegitimate use of witchcraft, the Lord permits Samuel's appearance to give a definitive message of judgment on King Saul. God speaks through the illegitimate means of the witch of Endor to provide the exception that proves the rule. And what's the rule? No one who fears the Lord should ever consider meddling with the occult. It only brings condemnation. Judgment upon Saul is coming, and the dead prophet gives God's word from the grave. Let's read it in verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. We see the distressed Saul ask the summons Samuel for guidance in the upcoming battle against the Philistines, but the only, only guidance that Saul gets is a promise of death. 
Samuel tells Saul that he has made himself an enemy of the Lord. The Lord is an enemy against Saul and his kingdom. The kingdom is already torn from his hand, and it will soon be given to David because why? Saul has disobeyed the voice of the Lord against Amalek. He did not destroy them entirely. And not only that, but now Saul has resorted to the wicked art of divination. Therefore, Israel will lose the battle against the Philistines, and Saul and his sons will die tomorrow. And notice Saul's descent over the text into increasing terrors. At the Philistine assembly in verse, he was afraid. And then in verse 20, we see that after he has prophesied death, Saul will be filled with fear. Let's keep reading in verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground and filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he, also, so he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. And now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Here we see the last supper of the rejected king of Israel, a sort of an anti-Passover, if you will. The, the woman offers Saul bread. Saul's now famished from fasting in preparation for the seance. At first, Saul refuses, but he eventually complies with the request to eat. And notice the irony in the text. The witch commands Saul to obey her command to eat. And his servants, along with the medium, persuade him. And we're told in the text, Saul, listen to their words. Here is the epitaph of Saul's life. Here is the man who refused to obey God's word, but obeys a witch. And Saul's last meal is a feast hosted in the house of the demonic. When Saul first identified, when Samuel first identified Saul as king, you might remember that Samuel brought Saul up as the guest of honor in a royal feast before the presence of God. The next day, Samuel anointed Saul as king. And how does the end of Saul's journey come to fruition? In the darkest of nights, feasting in the house of a dead, hosted by a witch. And the next day, Saul's not going to be anointed king. He will be rejected as king as he dies in battle. And as the last supper of King Saul ends, we are told they arose and went away that night. Similarly, as Judas receives the morsel of bread from the Lord's Supper, John tells us that he immediately went out, and it was night. The son of destruction follows in the footsteps of the rejected king, Saul. They both exit in the darkness of night into their deaths. Will we see Saul in heaven? The text never tells us an explicit answer. Only the Lord can judge his soul. But it, my opinion, I suspect that we will not. Saul is identified as an enemy of the Lord in the text. He ends his life 
dining at the seat of scoffers. I suspect that Saul's fall in 1 Samuel is a tragic case study of apostasy, a walking illustration of Hebrews chapter 6, of the sort of man who gives the impression of some sort of spiritual life while never having spiritual life in the first place. Saul's kingship was an act of judgment upon Israel, and the man Israel asked for, and thus his life ends in divine judgment. The tragedy of King Saul comes to its saddest and darkest moment here in 1 Samuel chapter 28. Saul is a dead man walking. And the next day he will die in battle. But in the next chapter, in chapter 29, we return from our flash forward. We go back to a few days prior at the start of the final week of Saul's life when David with Achish is gathering with the Philistine forces. And we see at the start of the chapter, they're assembling at Aphek to take on the army of Israel. And the mention of Aphek, a town might sound familiar to you, it calls back our attention to an earlier battle in the book where Hophni and Phinehas brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines. At Aphek, the Lord judged the house of Eli. And now the Philistines assembled in that same town as the Lord prepares to judge the house of Saul. But as the Philistine kings assembles their force, they begin to be a little concerned with the company that Akash is keeping. As they begin to look at the assembled crowd of the Philistines and they notice there's a large number of Hebrews here among us, what is David doing here? <laughs> and so what unfolds in chapter 29 is a humorous scene that drips with irony. Let's, let's read about it in verse 1, chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel, and the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands. And David and his men passing on in the rear with Achish. The commander of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, This this not David? The servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commander of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So as the Philistines watch the parading armies and these military exercises, they realize there's an army of Hebrews amongst them, and they get even angrier when Achish says, well, this is David and his army of all people. How can they, as Philistines, trust David to stand by their side and fight against his own people? The Philistine kings, other than Achish, discern David's schemes. And they pretty much tell Achish, hold, hold up a minute here. You're wanting to bring David with you into battle to fight against King Saul and Israel? How is David going to be loyal to us? We've taken Hebrew deflectors into battle before. Think back at the Battle of Michmash. We had them in our ranks, and then Jonathan showed up out of the ravine, and they all turned against us and started slaughtering us. And now you want to bring Israel's most famous general and line him up to fight right next to Israel? Don't be so dumb, Agesh. You know that as soon as the battle begins, David's going to earn back his loyalty from King Saul by betraying us and chopping off our heads. After all, this is the David 
of the hit single, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So Achish, the, the Philistine, has to go to David. And he's got to apologize to his loyal servant and give him the bad news that, David, I'm sorry, man, you're not going to be able to participate. Let's read about it in verse 6. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. We, we can imagine Achish's awkwardness in the conversation. David, um, I'm sorry to tell you this. I, I hate to disappoint you. I know you were so looking forward to this battle. I know you hate the Israelites, but, but you know, you just can't come with me to the campaign. I mean, I know I tried to vouch with you with my friends, right? I told them how much you hated Israel, how you've been raiding them and all that kind of stuff the last year, but they're just not buying it. They don't trust you. So my, my friends want me to send you back home. I'm sorry, David. I know you're really looking forward to it. Please forgive me. I know you came all this way, many miles up here to fight with me, but you have to go back to Ziklag. Please don't be mad at me, David, right? This is his attitude. And so the Lord prevents David from going into battle against Israel, and he sends David far away from the battlefield, the opposite direction of it. At the coming battle, the Lord will end Saul's life. And to protect David's reputation, the Lord sends David as far away as the battle as possible so that David could not be accused of having anything to do with the end of Saul's life. And so David travels south, back home with his army to Ziklag. And when they get to Ziklag, they discover that the Amalekites, the very people Saul were supposed to blot out, raided the town and took with them the children and wives of David and his men. Let's read about it in the start of chapter 30. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Hanoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Imagine the, the, the horror of an army of 600 men returning home to town and finding that all of your families have been kidnapped and taken away. The grief was so strong the emotion so intense that for a moment, the men considered stoning David, making their leader the target of their rage. And David suffered too. He lost both of his wives, taken captive. 
But here we begin to see the difference between Saul and David. What does Saul do when he's hit with emotion and fear? He runs to a witch. But David is a leader unlike Saul. He is a faithful leader. And a crisis like this is when a leader rises to provide leadership to his distressed people. And the Lord's anointed king does just that. He strengthens himself in the Lord. Let's read about it in verse 7. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him. And they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Notice the contrast already between David and Saul. David is the king who has God's word, who has God's guidance, while Saul implodes in sin because of his lack of God's word. David has the ephod of the priest. And when Saul frequently asks, acts impulsively and rashly, what do we see David do here? He restrains his emotions. And he first consults his plans with the word of the Lord. David is a king who desires to submit to the word of God, not his feelings. And the Lord gives him an answer. Go and rescue the families. Because some of the men were tired from the 50-mile journey over the last three days from Aphek back down south to Ziklag, David had to leave 200 of the men who were exhausted by the brook. But time was of the essence. They had to catch up with the Amalekites. And the remaining 400 men who were still able to go on march another 15 miles south to find the Amalekites and rescue their families. And as providence would have it, as they travel south, trying to find where these raiders went, David finds a sick and abandoned Egyptian who tips them off to the location of the Amalekites. Let's read about it in verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to the Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. The Egyptian man was abandoned by the Amalekites, and yet David, in generosity, offers him food and drink and revives him, again, preluding how the Lord's anointed extends his grace and generosity even to the Gentiles. And the man tells him that he's a servant of the Amalekite, and he discloses, maybe perhaps unintentionally, his involvement in the raid at Ziklag. But David presses for intel, and the Egyptian man says, I'll take you to exactly where they are, as long as David spares his life. Let's keep reading verse 16. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad all over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down, 
from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. And David and his men, as they approached the Amalekite camp, we see the Amalekites, they're dancing, they're celebrating, they're feasting, they're rejoicing in the victory of the spoils. But the next day, David unleashes an attack, and the Lord gave David the victory. Notice the text. that David recovered, it says, all that the Amalekites had taken. Not some of it, all of it. The point is emphasized, in case you missed it. Nothing was missing. David brought back all. And not only that, but David brought back all the other spoil and livestock from Amalekites. This is David's spoil. This is David's victory. This is David's triumph. Though we don't know for sure, David's victory of the Amalekites probably happened on the same day that Saul died at the hand of the Philistines in chapter 31. While Saul's kingdom ends, David ushers in his kingdom with a spectacular victory over the very people Saul was rejected for not slaying. When, while Saul's kingdom ends, David's king, kingdom come. On the Philistine battlefield will lay the corpse of King Saul and his sons, but on the Amalekite battlefield, the Lord's chosen and anointed king rejoices in the victory of the rescue. While the old Israel falls at the hands of the Philistines, the remnant of the true Israel at Ziklag is recovered and restored and rescued under David's leadership. No one and nothing was missing. And so does King Jesus usher in his kingdom through the spectacular rescue of his church. As Jesus rushes into the battle of the cross, as he'll do on Good Friday, he wages war against the kingdom of darkness to rescue his people who are entrapped in sin. And by his blood, Jesus pays the penalty for our sin, and he rescues us out of the hands of our enemy. And just as David rescued every citizen of his kingdom by his victorious hand, so does Jesus rescue every citizen of his kingdom by his victorious resurrection. And as Jesus saves his people, not one is lost. No one goes missing. The elect of God are rescued by the Lord's anointed. In this final week of tension between Saul and David, the week ends with David's victory and Saul's defeat. And so as we begin today to remember the final week of Jesus' life and his death and resurrection, we are reminded that Jesus is the victor. He is the king who rescues our souls from hell and grants us to share in the victory of his resurrection. What is most important this morning is that you recognize that Jesus is the victorious king. He is the rescuer of sinners. And that if you put yourself under his leadership, your soul will be safe and it will be secure. I implore all of us this morning, if you've yet to do so, turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus. In Jesus, you will find a refuge in his kingdom. 
You will find a king who is ready to receive you, ready to rescue you, ready to protect you from all enemies. Jesus is the shepherd king who does not lose his sheep. Not one will be plucked out of his hand. But the good news of the gospel, though, if it can get any better than that, is that not only is Jesus the rescuing king, but he is also the generous king. He shares the spoils of his earned victory with all of his people. When David and his men return from their rescue mission, they return to the 200 tired men that are weary by the brook. What happens there? Look at verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook at Bezor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as he, his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day, for, from that day forward to this day. Some of David's men are described as wicked and worthless fellows, men of Belial, even among David's ranks. Even in David's flock, there are a few goats among the sheep. These worthless fellows don't think that these 200 slackers should get to share in the spoils of their victory. After all, they worked hard. They went the extra 15 miles, and they followed David into battle, even though they were utterly exhausted. And these 200 guys, they've just been loafing around by the brook. Why do they get to share in the spoils of the victory? But David, the generous king, rebukes these men. He reminds them that the victory belongs to the Lord. All the spoils of the victory are what the Lord has given. And it was the Lord who preserved them and gave them the victory. And if anyone had a right to the spoil, it was David. It was his spoils. And so David makes it a statute. From that day forward, that every warrior will share in the spoils of victory equally. Back in 1 Samuel 8, Saul warned that when Israel requested for a king, that the ways of the king, the misfat of the king, would be that they would just take, 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 over and over from the people. They'll tax you, tax you, take, take, take. And behold, the misfat of God's king. Verse 25, translated as rule, same word as ways back in 1 Samuel 8. What is the way? What is the misfat? What is the rule of King David, of God's chosen king? Not take, 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 but give, give, give. David shares the spoils of his victory with his people, and so too does the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, share the spoils of his victory with his people. Jesus' victory becomes our victory. He lavishes upon us the riches of his grace. 
Jesus gifts us with his own righteousness. Jesus poured into our hearts the Holy Spirit, who is the deposit of our promise. Jesus grants us entrance into the family of God, enabling our adoption as sons and daughters. Jesus provides forgiveness of our sins. He permits us to share in his inheritance. Jesus fills us with abiding and unending joy, and he invites us into his Father's house where there are many rooms, and he promises that as we share in a death like his, so will we share in a resurrection like his. Jesus shares his victory with us. And see the lavish generosity of Jesus, who not only rescues us out of the captivity of sin, out of the poverty of our wickedness, but he bestows on us the spoils of his victory. He is generous with us. He does not withhold his hand, but he generously shares all that he has earned, all that he has won, all that the Father has given with him. It is now ours as we are united to Jesus by faith. And so does the generous heart of our loving King overflow. In the final paragraph of the chapter, we see that the blessings pour forth. They overflow as out of Ziklag, as David begins to share the spoils of the victory with his friends and the elders of Judah. Respond this morning to God's word. Respond to the generous heart of Jesus with thanksgiving. If you have been rescued by Jesus, by his blood, if you have received the privilege of sharing in Jesus' victory, then rejoice. Praise the Lord this morning with unceasing praise because what marvelous and powerful and wise and generous and victorious king do we have in Jesus? And if you're outside of Jesus' kingdom, and thus outside the bounds of his generous hand, let me invite you to join his ranks, to come into Jesus' kingdom, turn from your sin, and confess Jesus as your rescuer from sin and as the generous king who loves you and spoils you. Put your faith in Jesus. Become a citizen of his kingdom and receive the spoils of his victory as your own. Even if the hour of your life is late, and you've wasted most of your life loafing around by the brook, King Jesus has a share for you. Perhaps you spent all your life rejecting the word of the Lord. And as you become aged, as you've listened to one too many sermons, you become like Saul, desensitized to the Spirit's conviction through his word. And in recent years, the, the word of God, anytime you hear it, anytime you have a friend share it with you, anytime you hear a pastor preach it to you, the word of God just tends to bounce off of your heart quickly like a scattered seed upon the path. But friend, your rejection of the gospel message will cause the Lord to reject you. The judgment of eternal death awaits all who reject God's word. But the spirit of God is perhaps at work in your life today. Perhaps today you sense the Lord's conviction in your heart from the preached word in a way that you haven't felt in decades. And the Spirit of God is at work even now to extend to you another gracious opportunity for repentance. Do not run to the witch of Endor for new insight, for a new word, for a new teaching, for a new revelation. No, you must respond this morning to the same old gospel you've heard over and over and over again thus far have rejected because of your hardened heart. Confess your sins to God, and in brokenness, bend your knee today to the Lord's King, 
and Jesus Christ, our rescuing and generous king, will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And you can take heart this morning with great joy because our generous king speaks to you. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that you might work in our hearts according to your spirit. Make our hearts soft to your word. Convict us of our sin. Lead us to repentance, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.